production. Hello, it's Sarah. I wanted to let you know about my three new meditations I have made especially for you. If you follow the podcast, you'll know that meditation has been a big part of my life for a long time, so a lot of care has been taken in making these meditations extremely powerful. I've created a 20-minute manifestation meditation to allow you to bring your dreams into reality. Then I've created two 10-minute meditations, one for the morning to help you start your day vitalized and with a clear mind, then an evening meditation to help you have a calm and restful sleep. You can find these three meditations on my website at the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com. David White is a poet and author. We turn to David to help us understand the puzzle of being ourselves, of rising to our best capacities and gifts in all of our complexity and strangeness. David White's writings explore the timeless relationship of human beings to their world, to creation, to others and to the end of life itself. This conversation shines a spotlight on beauty in all its forms, loss and its dark waves and hope, the power we all possess to create the change we need and desire. Just being in the normal conversation of life is deeply spiritual. I mean, it's an absolutely astonishing miracle. If you don't think it's a miracle, you're not paying attention. You've only got to look up into the sky, but you don't even have to look up into the sky. Just the outline of your daughter's face or a friend's laughter or the ability to see. You know, the great miracle of life is not the turning of water into wine or walking across the water on Galilee. The great miracle of life is that there's something rather than nothing. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. David White is the author of many books, including Still Possible and Consolations. At its essence, this conversation is about regaining control of the stories we're telling because they are shaping the future we're creating. Remembering our deepest inspiration, healing our pain and apathy, and connecting to each other like never before. May this episode bring healing, believing, and belonging to all those disenchanted with our world, and most importantly, answer once and for all the questions of why we are here and what do we do now. David White, your mother is Irish and you grew up in Yorkshire and then moved to the States. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood? I was almost born in Ireland when my mother and father, for their own good reasons, went over to Ireland to see my mother's family when my mother was eight months pregnant because my mother's labour pains came on. And then I was almost born on the ferry back, which would have been perfect for the way my life has been, halfway between. My mother did get back to Yorkshire, actually, um, where I was born. I always say in Ireland, I say the doctors saw me as a very serious case and diagnosed me as an Englishman. (laughs) (laughs) Then the case was seen to be ameliorated and I was actually a Yorkshireman, which was no Englishman at all. So yeah, uh, I grew up in Yorkshire, but with a very powerful 
imaginative sense of Ireland through my mother mm. and through my Irish uncles and Irish family. So I lived betwixt and between in many ways. The local landscape was the moors of the Bronte sisters. You've probably seen them on on films or uh, had them evoked through through Wuthering Heights or, or many of the biographies of the Brontes. That was the landscape I grew up in, uh, which I loved, actually. And, you know, linguistically, it was uh, the house was in many ways a kind of meeting of two linguistic meteorological weather patterns, you know. <laughs> My, my Yorkshire father, you know, it's a very solid way of uh, of communicating in Yorkshire, but very compassionate at the same time, but lots of deep vowel sounds. If you can say something in one word, you wouldn't use three, you know. <laughs> and my mother's Ireland was on the other side of the house was completely different, you know. It was a completely different way of inhabiting the world. And I, I think I grew up really fascinated by language and the way that it actually shapes your your view of things. Mm. And I realized quite early on that I wasn't supposed to choose between these two hemispheres in a way. I would have used different language at the time, but when I look back, I, I was intuiting that I was supposed to live out the conversation between the two. Yeah. I mean, Yorkshire is all about this world. It's this incarnation. It's what's solid. I mean, it's so surreally practical and grounded that it actually emerges out the other side and has its own kind of surreal <laughs> parallels. But the Irish psyche is always working in different, in multiple contexts and multiple parallels all at the same time. And in many ways, that's the basis of Irish humor. You know? Whatever context you've arranged for yourself, there's always another context that makes your context absurd. <laughs> So I think my work is always working with our attempt to narrow our lives down to one context when in fact we're living in this in a in a multiverse you know we're living in in lots of parallels both in the present but also with people who've come before us I was just thinking this morning actually um I had a big decision to make and I was thinking about my grandfather and my grandmother and I, I had this sense I was making the decision not only for my own life, but for all the people who'd gone before me that in many ways we're carrying a torch for them. We're, mm. we're not just the latest wave breaking on the shore. We're actually the whole sea behind us all at the same time. And we often don't realize we're speaking in the voice of our grandfather or our grandmother or even ancestors that lived centuries ago they've just been passed down into our into our lives and our bodies in a uh in quite an astonishing way yeah it's true yeah. isn't it we never really lose anyone no i think the conversation carries on even after death yes i mean we're learning now about the way we inherit the gene expression mm. of our ancestors depending on on the traumas or the joys that they had in their life yeah Yes. And those are passed down the, it seems, you know, at the moment of conception, we're part of the ongoing drama. I have a memory of my mother sitting on my bed. And when I was young, for some reason, the, the light never worked in my room and nor did the door close properly. So the light was always on on the landing at the top of the stairs. And my mother would sit on the bed, silhouetted by the light on the landing, you know, and she would sing to me in, 
Irish or say poems or tell stories, you know. I always remember hearing in my mother's voice, my mother's 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 voice, you know, in the story she was telling me. Uh, it was a really, really powerful moment, actually. An absolute physical sense of that inheritance. It's interesting because I wonder, you being obviously a beautiful writer and poet, and then saying that your mum used to read to you and read poetry. Do we grow up loving those things and then that becomes what we are when we're older? And do you think that in your childhood, your mum reading you poetry and affected you, obviously in a good way, to see where you are now? Absolutely. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I think my mother's language, the compassion of her language, her ability to converse with strangers. My mother would always make friends with with everyone when we went on holiday. Her ability to carry the stories of her own ancestry in a powerful way. Mm. And her love of poetry and song at the same time, too. One of my favorite things was when my mother used to iron and sing at the same time. I would sit in the laundry basket, actually, with my mother singing. And the smell of fresh laundry, you know, that smell you get off a warm iron, yeah. So it's interesting, if I'm about to give a talk, you know, going on stage in front of of a large audience, thousand people, whatever, my way of preparing is to iron a shirt, actually, in my hotel room. Really? It's not so much, I probably would have done the preparation earlier about what I I might work with, but it's just the sense of tonality. Where am I now? And what's most important to get across, yeah. Mm. And I don't have the singing voice of my mother, so I don't sing, but I I am. (laughs) Maybe I sing under my my breath, you know. But uh, I always remember having a dream, actually, and I was digging up a, a, a floor with an iron and preparing this kitchen. And I realized, you know, when I woke up, it was all about the kitchen we were renovating and doing it in a loving way because it was the iron. (laughs) Yes. It's such a funny thing when you think back to Mm. your senses and your childhood. And the thing that I always remember is my mum always, when she would wear her dressing gown, she'd wear this beautiful dressing gown. Mum takes good care of herself and she'd always have this moisturiser and beautiful perfume. And I always remember feeling safe when I could smell that smell. Yeah. Everything would be okay. It's such an interesting thing because there is negative emotion that we can attach to things, but then there can just be a memory of this positive emotion via the senses. Yeah, and we never know how we're giving our gift to the next generation. And you Yes. You could be thinking that you're doing all kinds of great work in the world, but actually you're here because you were meant to be at a bus stop in a one Sunday afternoon. Uh, talking to an adolescent for half an hour because the bus wasn't coming. And in that conversation, you made a huge difference in that child's life. Mm. And that could be the reason for your whole incarnation, you know. I should say it, it could be the culmination. We never really know what our gift is until our last breath goes out. You never know what your work is actually about Mm. and who it's for and why you're doing it. That understanding deepens as the years go by. 
You've mentioned that your mother and her family underwent the traumas of the Catholic Church. Yes. How did that affect you when you were growing up? It affected me in a kind of hidden osmotic way because I never I never learned the true trauma of my mother's childhood in Ireland until I spoke with her brothers at my mother's funeral and mm. by her coffin. And the family was split apart by the church because my mother's mother died when she was 13. And the Catholic church in their wisdom decided that the children couldn't stay with the father, you know, as if they had the right to do that. But they did at that time. And they decided that the children would all go into homes. I mean, God knows where my mother would have gone. But both my uncles were abused by the Christian brothers and suffered that trauma for the rest of their life, yeah. And I never knew it. I knew there'd been some... My mother was an instinctual Catholic, like most Irish people have a deep Mm. sense of belonging to some other space than this, yeah. And uh, it's taken the form of Christianity at times in history, but my mother had that very powerful spiritual inheritance but she didn't like the church at all and she was allergic to it in many ways i mean i've got very good friends who've been priests and i've i've known the best of the catholic church as well as the worst through the suffering of my of my mother's family so my good friend john o'donoghue was a priest for 17 years great exponent of celtic inheritance celtic spirituality so having had your mom go through that how does that make you look upon religion did it taint your view of religion or were you able to compartmentalize that that was just there because sometimes that can be hard yeah you have to separate the wheat from the chaff because i'd say most institutions are most uh, institutional religions are Mostly bad news. Yes. But in every religious tradition, there are pearls without price. And I think of uh, Brother David Stendhal Rass, Benedictine monk. He's one of the wisest people I've had in my life. Beautiful, compassionate man. I think of John O'Donoghue. He left the church eventually, but he was 17 years in it, trying his best to bring some good news there. And then I think of really incredible Buddhists I, mm. I know and have known, I've been in the Zen tradition for years. And then at the same time, you go to Sri Lanka and there are militant Buddhist monks beating up people on the street, beating up Christians. And I'd say you need to be paying deep attention to the individuals who carry the flame. But I I mean, personally, I don't see any need for all of these fancy costumes and buildings, although I love a good cathedral, I love Evensong, I love chanting, you know, Benedictine chant and all the rest, yeah. But I think it's very, it's much simpler than all that. But it's always been taken over by the powers that be and used as a way, of course, of dividing and conquering and also of making people feel bad about themselves. Yes. And we have plenty of ways of feeling bad about ourselves. Exactly. I have a piece, actually, which which might be good to read. Oh, I would love for you to do that. I don't have it in my memory, but it's called The Edge You Carry With You. And it's about the way all of us have a wound which has been passed down one way or another. Yes. And it's not only our difficulty, but it's also the very opening through which we'll, we'll learn to give 
our gift. So this is my in my latest book called Still Possible, written during lockdown. Yeah. The edge you carry with you. So it begins with a beautiful question. What is this beguiling reluctance to be happy? What is this beguiling reluctance to be happy? This quickness in turning away the moment you might arrive, the felt sense that a moment's unguarded joy might after all just kill you. You know so very well the edge of darkness you have always carried with you. You know so very well the edge of darkness you have always carried with you. You know so very well your childhood legacy, that particular inherited sense of hurt given to you so freely by the world you entered. You know so very well your childhood legacy, that particular inherited sense of hurt given to you so freely by the world you entered. And you know too well by now the body's hesitation at the invitation to undo everything others seem to want to make you learn. The body's hesitation at the invitation to undo everything others seem to want to make you learn. But your edge of darkness has always made its own definition secretly as an edge of light. And the door you close might, by its very nature, be one just waiting to be leant against and opened. And happiness might just be a single step away on the other side of that next unhelpful and undeserving thought. And happiness might just be a single step away on the other side of that next unhelpful and undeserving thought. Your way home now understood not as an achievement, but as a giving up, a blessed undoing, an arrival in the body and a full rest in the give and take of the breath, the living, breathing body always waiting to greet you, this living, breathing body always waiting to greet you at the door, always, no matter the long years you've been away, still wanting you to come home, this living, breathing body always waiting to greet you at the door, always, no matter the long years you've been away, still wanting you to come home. That, that's such a beautiful poem. There's always been some intrigue that I've had with that line, come home. What does that mean to you? It's just so beautiful. It's knowing that it was always there. Yeah. The best of a home is always, always has a sense of rest with it. Yes, rest. When you reach home, you're uh, getting to a place where you can rest at last, yeah, or rest at the end of your day. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, it's actually coming home to rest in your own body. Yes. To feel comfortable in this body, whatever body you've been given or whatever body you've grown into, because you have a different body in your 40s than you did in your 20s. <laughs> Keeping up with yourself, with the frontier of your own maturation, what your body wants, what it needs, and allowing yourself to be honest with yourself about it mm. and for it to ask for that of yourself in your relationship with others, of your work, yeah? So this coming home, you know, the ancient traditional understanding in our great contemplative traditions is that you come home to the body through the breath. Yeah? Mm. Because the breath is the actual autonomic way that we give and take in the world. Mm. You take in a breath and then there's this wonderful interstitial moment 
where you're neither breathing in nor breathing out. And that's a place of silence where you hold both sides of the conversation together yeah? mm. and then you let the breath out. Yeah? And the interesting thing about breathing is that it's autonomic. You actually don't have to do anything to breathe. Your body actually is made to breathe whether you want to or not. Yes. Yeah? But the interesting thing is if you sit for any amount of time following the breath, you will realize how much will and effort you're putting into something that could do its work just being left radically alone. Yeah? And in fact, you realize you're overriding a very restful way of being in the world. Yeah, mm. This willful effort all the time is actually covering over and smothering something that's much more restful much more able to give and much more able to invite and to take in the right way other people's gifts. Yeah. So coming home is this, coming home into the natural rhythm and the give and the take and the silence between those two mm. qualities. Yeah. When did you start writing this beautiful poetry? Um, I don't know when I started writing beautiful poetry, <laughs> but I started, I started writing when I was about seven years old, yeah. And then I, I took another serious turn when I was 13 or 14, so. And I wrote seriously for about seven years until I, I went into sciences and marine zoology took all of my energies and rock climbing and having a good time at college and, and then going off and being in the Galapagos Islands as a guide so I was vagabonding around the world and um, and then I came back seriously uh, to poetry when I was 27 or 28 yeah. and I realized that the scientific precision was not necessarily the precision you needed to talk about a human being's relationship with the world yeah, yeah. I mean rightly so science is constantly trying to eliminate the, the human intervention in what you're seeing. Yeah. I was really interested in the phenomenology of what you think is you meeting what you think is not you. Yeah. And you have that when you're out in the wilds, whether you're in the Galapagos Islands or a mountaintop, but you also have it in the kitchen with your loved one, your wife, your husband, your partner, your son, your daughter. Yeah. What you think is you and what you think is not you. Yeah. And that frontier is always much grander, larger, and more overwhelming than you've allowed, yeah. Mm. So I always say, no one survives a real conversation, <laughs> which we all know very well yeah. from marriage or relationship. I say the same about poetry, really. No one survives writing a good poem. Mm. You should not be the same person who began the poem at the end of the poem, yeah. How has it changed you, writing poetry? Well, I think it's made me a better man, a better person. Mm. It's allowed me to take journeys I would have been afraid to take without its articulation, you know, and its helping hand. I remember when I lost my mother, actually, when she died. As the firstborn son of an Irish mother, I always felt this incredibly special connection. And I don't know if you notice, if you ever talk to... Irishmen, they'll always end up talking about their mothers at one time or another. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I'm going to notice that now. Yeah. 
So I had a very powerful connection, but I hadn't realized how much of a foundation she was in my life. Yeah. Here I was thinking I was this blue water vagabond, 007, <laughs> Indiana Jones character, getting out of all of these situations myself in wild parts of the world. I had a very powerful experience, actually, of almost drowning in Galapagos at this place called the Blowhole, which is on Hood Island. It's, the sea comes down underneath this barnacle-encrusted cliff, and it shoots up this fissure in the lava cliff and creates this geyser in the air. And it's very spectacular. It's like Old Faithful. And it changes according to the rhythm of the waves as they come in. And as a guide and with other guys, we used to go down there and stand. We wouldn't let the peop our people we were guiding go down, but we would go down, stand on the edge and get this enormous tonnage of water falling as in, on a, as in a shower. One day there was a freak wave and I looked out. I was with my friend and fellow guide, Matt Downing. And uh, I realized the sea had disappeared, yeah. And instinctively, I shouted, run to Matt, because I knew there was an enormous wave coming in above all the other waves that we'd experienced so far. And we turned to run, and the wave not only came up the, the fissure in the cliff, but it came over the cliff, yeah. Carried us and threw us against a wall there. Actually, luckily, we both hit it feet first. And then it dragged us back and we were left, you know, the next thing people could see was in horror, we were hanging over the edge of the cliff. Oh my God. Yeah, scrabbling. And if either of us had gone down there, I would not be here or Matt wouldn't be around today. And um, we would have died. It was, uh, as I say, an undercut barnacle encrusted hellhole down there. <laughs> uh, but we managed to scrabble the next wave, took us not only against the cliff, but over it actually and deposited us at the feet of the people there. So that was an incredibly traumatic and powerful experience. It, it taught me the power of the waves. I was a much, we lived on sailing yachts for two years in Galapagos. I was a much better sailor after that. I had much more respect for the sea, but I never told my family about it. And I specifically never told my mother because I knew she'd be worried. Yeah. Well, it was a few years later and uh, back in Yorkshire in the cottage, and my mother and I, when everyone had gone to bed, we'd sit up and have a glass of whiskey and she'd sing a song. I might play a, play a piece on the fiddle or something. And, and we'd chat and uh, drink the whiskey. And then she suddenly started telling me about a dream she'd had while I was in Galapagos. She said, you were standing with another man down on a cliff. This huge wave came in, was about to pull you out. And in the dream, I reached out and I lifted you to safety. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. The hairs just stood up on the back of my neck. Yeah. Because my mother had never been told a word about that story. I hadn't told anyone else in my family, in fact. Yeah. So we had this very, very powerful connection. And when my mother went, I felt this ground was gone from me. I was no longer the person I'd been, actually. Mm. And I always think grief is like falling in love. You're literally falling and you th you, you're waiting to touch the ground and you don't. You just keep falling, actually. I always say the only cure for grief is grief itself. Yeah? Mm. And feeling it more fully. Well, this brings me back to your original question around how poetry has been good to me, you know. 
So I wrote my way into the grief of losing my mother in an intense six months. And all those poems are in a collection called Everything is Waiting for You. Is there a poem from that time? I know you have the well of grief and I wonder, is there a poem that really talks about that time, especially after the loss of your mother? There is, yeah, yeah. So just to round that out, after I'd written for six months, I put my pen down and or closed my laptop, I can't remember which, and I, I said to myself, I've gone through seven years of grief and healing in six months, yeah. Mm. And I had a totally different relationship with my mother and I was able to give her away and wave her on her way. And one of the experiences I had was that this woman who had thought about me above almost anything else in her life was actually not concerned with me anymore. <laughs> she had other she had other fish to fry, you know? And it was when I first <laughs> had that sense, it was quite disturbing, but then it became quite wonderful, actually. I said, you know, when my mother was alive, I was never able to really see her as a woman independent of being a mother. Yeah. Yeah. And yet she was, yeah. And she could have had a life without being a mother. Yeah. This is a piece I wrote for her after she went. We've all had the experience, you've probably had the experience, Sarah, you know, when you've lost someone close to you of, of a bird at a window yes. or seeing a rainbow far off or hearing a voice and then you don't hear it and your sense is that you've just been spoken to, yeah? Yes. Uh, by the person you've lost. Whether we believe in the afterlife or not, we have this instinctual wonderment about what they might be up to on the other side. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Where are they now and what are they doing? Yeah, yeah so true. And my intuition was my mother was already off into a new childhood, yeah. Really? Her own childhood had been cut short by the loss of her own mother. And she'd had to look after her sisters and brothers, yeah. So I felt like she was both meeting her old mother and being a child in her new life. And she was skipping off and just leaving us all, yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. Time to move I on. Killed, my, yeah. killed myself, you know. <laughs> Time to re-enjoy my childhood again. But one morning I woke up in the cottage in Yorkshire with my father was in a different room. And I had a dream whereby I got this letter from her in the dream. And I was sat on the back bench by her rose bush, actually, Dublin Bay Roses. And I was in sunlight and I was looking at at the envelope in my dream. And I was so happy because I knew in the dream, as you do know in dreams, that inside this letter, she would tell me where she was and what she was about. And I'd find out everything about what she was doing. And I was so happy. Mm. And then I went to open the envelope and didn't I wake up, of course. <sighs> <you know? laughs> and I tried to get back to sleep. I put my head back on the pillow in the same place. And... Uh, and then I sat up and I said, David, there's part of you already knows what your mother would say to you. Now go to the kitchen table and write that letter to yourself. Yeah. Yes. So I did. And this is the piece I wrote. It's called Farewell Letter. 
the letter from my mother after she passed away. Yeah. Farewell letter. She wrote me a letter after her death. She wrote me a letter after her death. And I remember a kind of happy light falling on the envelope as I sat by the rose tree on our old bench at the back door, so surprised by its arrival, wondering what she would say, looking up before I could open it and laughing to myself in silent expectation. Dear son, dear son, it is time for me to leave you. I'm afraid that the words you are used to hearing are no longer mine to give. They're gone and mingled back in the world where it is no longer in my power to be their first original author nor their last loving bearer. You can hear motherly words of affection now only from your own mouth. You can hear motherly words of affection now only from your own mouth and only when you speak them to those who stand motherless before you. Mm -hmm. You can hear motherly words of affection now only from your own mouth and only when you speak them to those who stand motherless before you. As for me, I must forsake adulthood and be bound gladly to a new childhood. You must understand this apprenticeship demands of me an elemental innocence from everything I ever held in my hands. I know your generous soul is well able to let me go. You will in the end be happy to know my God was true. And I find myself, after loving you all for so long, in the wide, infinite mercy of being mothered myself. Mm -hmm. P.S. All of your intuitions were true. I know your generous soul is well able to let me go. You will, in the end, be happy to know my God was true. And I find myself, after loving you all for so long, in the wide, infinite mercy of being mothered myself. P.S. All of your intuitions were true. It's so funny because I always think I'm a super spiritual person and there are people that are like, oh, there's no afterlife. And it's funny that line that you use because I always think they'll be laughing when they go. <laughs> they'll be like, she was right. She was <laughs> right. She was, I'm staring down at her now and she was right. I mean, who knows? And that's me yeah. just having my ego think that I am right. But I wonder for you, how has your mother's loss, but your life and and everything that you've written and been through, where did spirituality come into that and how have you used that in your life? I just think just being in the normal conversation of life is deeply spiritual. I mean, yes. it's, it, it's an absolutely astonishing miracle. And if you don't think it's a miracle, you're not paying attention. Yeah? Yes, it's really astonishing. I mean, look at the starlit sky behind you there in your studio yeah. uh, depicted. Uh, that's incredible. Um, you've only got to look up into the sky, but you don't even have to look up into the sky. Just the outline of your daughter's face or a friend's laughter uh, or the ability to see. My friend John O'Donoghue 
used to say, you know, he was a great theologian and, and speaker, and he used to say, you know, the great miracle of life is not the turning of water into wine or walking across the water on Galilee. He said, the great miracle of life is that there's something rather than nothing. Yes. And we get to be part of that something. You know, the fact that you can see, or even if you can't see, that you can hear, you know, that mm. you have this body that can feel and touch and cry and love and be sad and be in despair. It's actually a privilege to be in despair, Ole. Um, so I've always felt that, actually. I had this, always had this instinctual sense that the whole thing was just absolutely astonishing, you know? Mm. And I suppose part of wanting to write poetry was was to have a language that was commensurate that astonishment and appreciation in a way mm. and to go deeper into that conversation to to make myself more astonished in a way and to lead other people by the hand or invite them through the voice to be part of that invitation it's interesting isn't it how there can be meaning in the mundane and i was listening I was listening to an interview that a man that has been in jail for 40 years was giving and he was doing the interview from jail and he was on death row and he was talking about how they they asked him what he missed the most and he said that he just hasn't seen the night sky for 40 years and he was saying, everyone just make sure when you're driving, when you're walking, I mean, we miss so much in life something like the night sky we take for granted until it's not with us anymore or we don't have the ability to be able to see it. And I think you could say that for your health and everything in life, but I think there's something in that, in appreciating the everyday and finding those spiritual things in even the most mundane of situations, not blanking out to them and not thinking that we do have meaning, there is meaning in a lot of what we do. You know, all of our great contemplative traditions, when they describe Kensho, Sartori, enlightenment, it's not about you, actually. It's about being found by the world. Yes. As if everything suddenly is seen to have its own light coming to find you, its own voice. Yeah. I have a piece called Everything is Waiting for You, which looks at that at that phenomena, Yeah. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you're alone. Everything Mm. is waiting for you. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you're alone, as if life were a progressive and cunning crime with no witness to the tiny hidden transgressions. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely, even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence, and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you or the window latch grants you courage. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. Alertness is the hidden discipline of of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Mm. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing, even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. 
all the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything, everything, everything is waiting for you. Mm. Yeah, so beautiful. You write a lot about the beauty in nature and what we can see and what we can we can hear. And I wonder what you found in the silence, in those silent times. Well, in many ways, I think, you know, all real experience occurs in silence. And when your own voice or your own projection, which is also a kind of noise, projection on a person, smothers the original voice of the world. A good friend of mine, Zen teacher Henry Shukman, calls it original love, actually. It's that everything has its own form of original love. And if you quieten down enough, you will actually be able to receive the essence of that love. Mm. And with a person who is shut down or in distress or destructive or self-destructive, you see the ways that they're hiding themselves from themselves. You see the way love is actually blocked off or twisted or turned in on itself. Their essence, the way they pay attention to the world, you could say, is the way they love the world, what they care about through that. I think everything occurs in that silence where you allow the other person's voice to speak back to you. It's actually quite a rare thing in human conversation for a person to really be listening to the other person who's speaking to them. Yeah. But when you are, it profoundly changes the exchange. And actually, it can be quite scary for people to be really listened to because they're so used to they're so used to people only half listening to them and waiting for them to fire off their pieces of conversational ammunition as soon as you yes. stopped your side. Yeah, so it can be quite disturbing to really, really listen to what a person is saying. And take silence, yeah, in that listening. It is. It's such an interesting thing. I've done a lot of research on listening and being a professional listener my whole life. It is. It's. I see. Yeah. When you're actually being present with someone and listening to them, it's not only a gift for the other person, but it's a gift for you as well. When did we get to the stage as a society where there are so many distractions that Listening has become such a sacred thing and also a forgotten thing. Yes, yeah. You mentioned to me before we started speaking, you said to me, troubles are a doorway to understanding and I just think that's so unbelievably beautiful. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, I first started thinking about this uh, after writing a kind of chorus line for a poem about one of my favourite places in the world. It's a a gorgeous valley in the heart of Connemara called Lochaina, which means the Lake of Ivy. And it's just this marvellous Wyoming-like space with mountains on both sides, two lakes running along the bottom, and a glorious pub in the middle, you know, so it has everything you need. <laughs> yes. It's always been a very, very powerful place for me. So I was writing a piece about it. And I realized that as I was writing, I was writing about mortality, actually, as if I was walking towards my own disappearance. Mm. And then 
because I was in Ireland, this Yeatsian chorus, he has all Yeats, you know, William Butler Yeats has all these choruses yes. in his poems, which are so marvellous, yeah. I wrote these lines which were, Oh, love, bring every grief you've carried with you. Oh, love, bring every grief you've carried with you. There's a door beneath everything you'll walk right by if you don't stop to look with that, with that troubled heart and a loving eye. Oh, love, bring every grief you've carried with you. There's a door beneath everything you'll walk right by if you don't stop to look with that troubled heart and a loving eye. And actually, after I wrote it, I realized it wasn't Yeats. It was pure Leonard Cohen, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I said, I remember looking up and saying, I've never written a Leonard Cohen line before, but there it is. It's pure Leonard Cohen. And there's a door beneath everything you'll walk right by if you don't stop to look with that troubled heart and the loving eye. And when I'd written that, I realized, no, that's that's the conversation we're all in. Yeah. Mm. There'll never be a moment where you're not troubled. You'll either be troubled by your troubles, yeah, or you'll be troubled by the miraculousness of, of the world inviting you out into an even more generous place. Yeah. Mm. It's just trouble wherever you are as a human being. Yeah? And it, in the Bible, it says human beings are born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so it's really, it's really a wonderful, merciful thing to think that you'll always be troubled, actually. And whether it's the troubledness of, we all know how we get troubled by love, actually. Mm. When you first realize, oh my God, I'm in love. <laughs> it's both wonderful and deeply troubling at the same time because you know your life is going to be burned to the ground. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You'll have to build it up from the foundation again. And so you know you're going to go through all kinds of wild things and take all kinds of strange paths. Yeah. So it's lovely to understand that you'll always be living with some kind of trouble. Yeah. And the other kind of trouble, which is the troubleness we feel when we're stressed, when we know we should be doing something and we're not doing it, or that kind of inchoate anxiety that people feel, especially feel in today's world. To actually turn towards it and realize, you know, it's the deeper part of yourself knocking on the door for integration, yeah with your everyday world, yeah. You're troubled because you're not listening to that revelation beneath the trouble. Yeah. Yeah. And to be able to turn towards your trouble, to rest into the trouble, yeah. To not want to give it away, actually, to say, actually, there's no one else can be troubled in the way I can be troubled, yeah. This is my trouble. This is my treasure. This is my pearl without price, actually. Mm. This is the very knock on the door from what I need in my life right now. Yeah. And it's asking for a kind of radical simplification almost always. Yeah. You can't turn towards it without simplifying radically. And it takes a kind of invitational, robust vulnerability also at the same time. That's beautiful. What's been your greatest awakening? I mean, to my mind, awakening is just the the next step into the wider generosity of your maturity. And sometimes that takes subtle forms, slowly understanding something over Mm. the years, slowly 
realizing, you know, for instance, that it never does any good to sulk. Yeah. <laughs> and finally getting to the point where you don't sulk anymore because you realize it's just a waste of time, but it might have taken you years to get yes. there. Yeah? So that's one form of revelation. But it's if you look back, if you're kind to yourself and look back and say, oh, my God, I used to be a terrible sulker. And look at how my life was then. And now I'm free from it, actually. And if I do sulk for a moment, I can have a sense of humor about it now. And then there's the mind-blowing opening of revelation, you know, of having your senses and your sense of yourself blown open and broken open by the world. Yeah. That's the spectacular form of, of revelation that we tend to talk about when we talk about awakening. Yes. There's the awakening of slowly deepening your attention, you know, going from paying attention with 40% of your presence to 51% of your presence to 61% of your presence to 75% of your presence to 90% of your presence to 99% of your presence, yeah. And it may be, you know, that that very last 1% is the hardest bridge to cross, you know, between 99% being there and 100% being there. <laughs> so we have those slow, I've sat for years in Zen, that's a gradual awakening that happens that every now and again creates these doors that just fly open. Yeah. But it's because you've been sitting for so long. It's because you've been paying deep attention. It's because you've been letting the world come to find you in larger and larger ways. Yeah. Mm. David, do you have a favourite prayer? I'm afraid to say it's one of my own poems at the moment. No, yeah. they, they can be your favourite poem. I always ask someone favourite prayer saying poem in your case? I wrote it for John O'Donoghue, actually. Yeah. He used to lead a Easter Mass every year in the out of doors at this wonderful ruined monastery called Corkham Row in County Clare. And often I'd be here at this desk, actually, at 10 o'clock at night, and he'd be up at six in the west of Ireland to lead this dawn Mass. And I'd often think of him greeting the light there. So after he died, I wrote this I wrote this piece, yeah, it's called Blessing for the Morning Light. And John was a great blesser, yeah, he was a genius blesser. He wrote a book of blessings, actually. And it's about bringing the secret part of you out into the world to meet what's coming to find you, you know, allowing the two to meet, what's secret over the horizon of the world, coming to meet what is as yet secret inside you, but is waiting to be spoken and heard in the world, yeah. The blessing of the morning light to you. The blessing of the morning light to you. May it find you even in your invisible appearances. The blessing of the morning light to you. May it find you even in your invisible appearances. May you be seen to have risen from some other place you know and have known in the darkness and that carries all you need. May you see what is hidden in you as a place of hospitality and shadowed shelter. May what is hidden in you become your gift to give. May you hold that shadow to the light and the silence of that shelter to the word of the light. May you join every previous disappearance with this new appearance, this new morning, this being seen again, new and newly alive. Mm. 
So special. David, what is the most mystical experience that you have ever had? What immediately comes to mind is both my son and my daughter's birth. Yeah. Mm. The mystery of that appearance of this person in your life, yeah. who strangely you realize in some way has been there all along. You know, you didn't, you didn't realize until they emerged into the world, you know. And, you know, there's a trauma associated with birth. When you hear that cry, it's not the sound of someone who's glad to be here. Yeah? They've gone through this tremendous physiological transformation, valves open and close in an infant's body that will never open and close again for the rest of their life. They empty their lungs out of that fluid and they take a breath of what feels like poison now, yeah? mm. which is air. Yeah. And they've been expelled from this beautiful rent-free environment, living close to the midnight heartbeat of their mother, and suddenly they're out in this hostile environment. You know, so I had this sense of someone having come to you through a travail, yeah, to be here, and having undergone a difficult journey in order to be in your life. Yeah? And, of course, it reminds me that all of us came through that difficult travail to be here. That's probably up there with many of the mystical experiences. I mean, I've, missed, I've had mystical experiences in the Himalayas on mountaintops and uh, out at sea and sitting on a Zen cushion and all the rest, you know. But uh, that's the one that comes to mind at the moment, yeah. The appearance of someone who's been through an astonishing journey to appear in your life and now you're going to accompany them and look after them until they can go out into the world on their own. Mm. What is a life of greatness to you? To my mind, it's someone who stays close to the way they're made, mm. close to what they care about, yeah, and lives a life from that close in foundation, traveling out along that trajectory of care and compassion for, for other people in the world, yeah. We tend to think of greatness associated with public figures, you know, people who have sacrificed in public, yeah. But I've met so many quiet, individually great people in my life, yeah, who have been absolute saints, yeah. And no one knows of them outside a small circle of, of people. Yeah. But whether you're well-known or not, you know, the ability to stay close to yourself, to stay real, to stay foundational, to remember what's first priority, not lose yourself as you're doing your work, as you're going out into the world, but to carry with you what you were given at the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of us are made to hold this conversation of life in a in a very, very particular way. And there's no one else actually can take that place. No one else can hold the conversation of life the way you can, I can, or anyone else in the world can. So will you actually live that very, very particular uh, bird of paradise conversation <laughs> uh, out, yeah? as your gift, no matter what form it takes. That's my image of greatness, yeah. 
Is there a final poem that you would like to leave us with? I can't imagine that there wouldn't be. <laughs> no, I think it's a nice tone to finish off our conversation, to finish with a poem when we have a beautiful poet in front of us. Yeah, this is a very short poem. It's in my latest book, Still Possible. You probably know of this very famous pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain. Everyone's doing it around the world. Yeah. And it used to be a Catholic pilgrimage. Now it's a wonderful ecumenical pilgrimage where people of every persuasion and no persuasion at all are doing it. So I've written a whole cycle of poems about the Camino, you know, the path. Yes. And this is one that startled me that I wrote, which is at the beginning of Still Possible. And it's called For the Road to Santiago. Yeah. For the Road to Santiago, don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind. For the road to Santiago, don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind. Bring what you have. You're always going that way anyway. You're always going that way all along. Don't make new declarations. For the road to Santiago, don't make new declarations about what to bring and what to leave behind. Just bring what you have. Bring what you have. You're always going that way anyway. You're always going that way all along. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.